The Real Investment Show. Yeah, some interesting kind of stories out this morning on a few fronts because, you know, we're talking about, you know, oil prices up and inflation's up across the board, really kind of no matter where you look at it. Um, Of course, a lot of this has to do with the fact we can't get product. Um, Right now, there are just dozens upon dozens of ships off the coast of L.A. waiting to port and simply can't get into port to unload their their inventories. And this is, of course, leading to longer delivery times. And, of course, if there's a lack of product on the shelves, then the price of that product goes up because it's scarcity. And this is about this just the way the economy works. It's, it's supply and demand. And right now you've got more demand than their supply, so prices go up, so you have inflation. Of course, you know, when you put in impute into that, higher transportation costs because of fuel costs, lack of truck drivers, et cetera. There's a company here in Texas paying $14,000 a week to (laughs) drive a truck, you know? So who needs a college degree, right? Um, You know, this is, you know, all feeding into this loop where we need to get or need to understand at least that inflation is 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 a real problem here, despite the fact when we take a look at government measures of inflation, PCE and CPI, et cetera, that you know, that data is manipulated and shows a lower rate of inflation than what actual people deal with. And and look, there's there's all kinds of reasons and we can art we can debate the whole issue of how CPI and PCE is calculated all day long, and it doesn't matter. It's just the end of the day is is that Consumers only have so much money to spend, and the cost of living is going up. And this leads to, well, disgruntled consumers. Leads to, you know, people not being happy. And, you know, they're just trying to make ends meet, pay bills, and get to work. I mean, that's all they want to do. And so you can kind of understand this kind of underlying, um, you know, tenseness in the economy and, and with consumers. And, and again, there's a, a lot of a lot of angst. Now, this doesn't bode well going into 2022, particularly for the midterms. Um, you know, if you're going to get reelected, you want your economy to be basically doing well because people vote for change. You know, this is one of the interesting sidelines of the last election, the presidential election, is that we saw a lot of traditionally red states vote Democratic because they just didn't like the guy that was in office. It wasn't a vote for political ideologies or beliefs or policies. It wasn't a vote for any of that. It was just, I don't like that guy, so I'm going to vote for the other guy, and we got the other guy. Now people are going, why did I vote for that guy? I want somebody different. And so when we get to this next election, people vote with their pocketbooks. Man, they go, I don't, you know, I, I don't have work. I can't make ends meet. Inflation's going up. I mean, there's a lot of memes running around the internet right now of people saying they got robbed at the gas station and they're holding up a picture of the president saying by this guy. <laughs> and you but that's that underlying kind of sense that something's not quite right economically and and things shouldn't be going the way that we're going, but this is all a byproduct of the stuff that we've been doing over the last year and stuff that we've talked about here on the show repeatedly is that if you do these things You know, if you do these direct checks to households, if you create this artificial demand, if you do these type of things, there are consequences to these actions that will lead to higher inflation, slower economic growth, and exactly the things that we're seeing right now. 
and the, and the and the problem is always the same with government interventions is that once you do them you can't stop doing them and more importantly once you do them you have to keep increasing them in order to keep economic growth going because if you just provide the same amount of money every year economic growth drops back to zero and you just wind up with more debt and more in interest and, and higher interest rates so that's all coming, you know, everything we discussed previously, all now coming to fruition. That's exactly what you would expect to happen. It's not, you know, it's not rocket science, even though economists seem to kind of miss this very simple relationship between money and behaviors. And it's kind of an interesting idea. Uh, there's, you know, when you talk about economics, the one thing that economists are really, really bad at is understanding human nature. And they come up with these great ideas. It's like, well, if we just provide everybody a paycheck, this was there. I was reading an article over the weekends talking about extended unemployment benefits and that we shouldn't cut those off. We should just keep people on extended unemployment benefits. And by the way, this is a former Fed member, you know, economist also making this statement. She says that we shouldn't remove extended unemployment benefits. We should get people all the time they want to go back to work and to find the job that they really want to do. But what she misses is, is that if I'm giving people enough money not to work, that's the job they want to do. People don't inherently want to go to a job all day and, and do whatever they do, particularly if it's kind of a mundane, repeatable task. It's, it's boring, right? They don't want to do that. If they can stay home and do whatever they want to do and be paid to do that, then they will opt for that. But this is the problem with economics is that they never factor in human nature. Let me give you another example. Let's say that I made... $60,000 a year. I'm just throwing out a number. I'm, say I make $60,000 a year and I can live my life, but I've got to go do this job every day, laying brick or constructing a house or doing plumbing or, or working in an office. It doesn't matter what the job is, but it's a job that I'm really not crazy about. But I make $60,000 a year in doing it. Now, what the economists say is, is that, well, you know, Lance lost his job, making $60,000 a year. Let's give him $48,000 a year to tide him over until he can go find another $60,000 a year job. And then he'll go back to work because he'll be making more money than he's making at home. No, Lance won't do that. What Lance will figure out to do is, is, wait a minute, I'm not driving to work every day, so I don't have to have the gas. I'm not having to eat out for lunch or you know whatever, so I'm saving money there, and I'm not having to pay for daycare now, so I don't have to do that because I can stay home and take care of my kids. I can figure out how to live on $48,000 a year. That's human nature. And this is, the, this is the entire problem with all these types of government assistance programs that we mishappenly throw out there. They're all well-intentioned, right? Let's give people more money to do stuff that they, want, that they need to do. Let's give them more childcare. Let's give them more of this and let's give them more of that. Okay, great. But see, we don't tie it to specific need. Let's give people more money, childcare, money, right? Let's increase their child tax credit so they can afford 
preschool and child daycare so they can go back to work. But see, we don't say, hey, here's a pot of money for you specifically for child daycare and for child preschool so you can go back to work. No, we just give them the money. And so they go, oh, I got this money. You take a look at what it's spent on. It's spent on food, groceries, gas, everything but child care. Again, giving me more money. Why am I going to go to work? I'll just stay home and take the money. And then we wonder why we have an exceptional number of job openings. We've got more than 2 million job openings per people that are unemployed. <laughs> there are two jobs available right now than there are number of people that are unemployed according to the roles, right? So there are plenty of jobs available. Why are we giving people money to stay at home? Human nature. And this is just the one things that we tend to forget over and over again. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's always interesting when you look at economics and you listen to these economists talk, they say, well, we, need, we, need, we must do this. As the government, we must give people this money. Why? If you don't give people money, they don't really have a choice. They have to go to work. And I know that sounds cruel, that we have to make people work, but here's how the economy works. If you want stronger rates of economic growth, you have to produce first. People have to go to work. They have to earn a paycheck in order to get paid. Then when they get paid for producing a good or service that other people are buying, they now have money with which they can consume with. And so they go buy stuff, which now increases the demand on the products that are available, which increases economic growth. We are a 70% driven economy by consumption, but we must produce first in order to have both the product for other peoples to consume, as well as to have the money with which to consume with. The evil isn't making people go to work. The evil is actually providing money to people not to work because after the first year of giving them money, the cost of living rises to the point that they are no longer able to support their living on the money they're being given. Poverty becomes a bigger problem. We actually increase poverty rates. We actually increase the number of people that are in the lower income streams by trying to help them by giving them money instead of giving them an incentive to go to work. But that's just crazy. Anyway, as we uh, we're talking about here's uh, kind of you know earlier in the show is that you know inflation's a problem here, and with markets where we are right now, this is you know this battle right now between putting money to work and participating with markets, and this underlying erosion of economic fundamental and technical data. So far. Markets have been able to withstand a lot of the underlying deterioration. And the question is whether or not it will be able to do that as we go forward. A few things that are coming up. As we said earlier, we're about to move into earnings season starting this week. We're going to start seeing a lot more corporate earnings, and we're going to get real busy over the next couple of weeks. Majority of the S&P 500 will be reporting. And the thing that we really want to be watching for there is going to be not what they report, but what they say their outlook is. The other side about this is interest rates, inflation, 
all these type of other ingredients. The Fed trying to come in and taper their balance sheet. A inability, potentially, for another big liquidity dump into markets. And again, as we've talked about before, while we could see another package of some type of fiscal support, right? Infrastructure, et cetera, two trillion, two and a half trillion. There's a difference. A lot of the markets right now are going, man, if we if we could just get another three and a half trillion dollars thrown at the markets, markets just go through the roof. Well, that's would be true, except there's a difference in the way the money's being spent. First of all, when we did the last $5 trillion that got the markets to where they are now, those were direct checks to households. A lot of, you know, we had a lot of gamblers that weren't able to go to Vegas. The, the, the sports betting was locked down because of the whole coronavirus pandemic, shut down the economy. And so a lot of that money that was sent to households, gamblers were taking and putting it directly to work online through apps like Robinhood. The problem with this new spending is it's not direct checks to households. It's money being spent over 10 years. Infrastructure never works the way it's intended. Go back to President Obama. When he was in office, he wanted to do an infrastructure bill, and we passed an infrastructure bill. We passed $800 billion to be spent on infrastructure and all kinds of other stuff. And about six months later, President Obama says, well, infrastructure wasn't quite as shovel-ready as we thought it was, and it never is. Just because I improve money to be spent on things doesn't mean there's actual projects there for that money to be spent on. And more importantly, a lot of these projects that we're lining up to spend money on are not productive. They don't make money. So basically, you're just kind of throwing money down a dead hole. Look, we've been funding Amtrak since it was a Lionel train set, I think, because, and it still can't make money. Yeah, it runs, but it loses money. High-speed rail, all you gotta do is look at California for the success of that project. Another black hole of money that gets spent that doesn't create anything. So again, a lot of this money that we're about to spend isn't going to funnel through into creating stronger rates of economic growth. It's not going to help bolster earnings. It's not going to help create better economic prosperity for individuals. A lot of it's just people's ideas about social justice more than anything else, right? Yeah, we're going to give people some more money to spend on child care. That's true, but that's spread out also over time. So it gets absorbed into higher cost of living. And of course, as soon as people figure out this is the problem with college funding, as soon as the government took over student loans, look what happened to college tuition. Why? Because colleges went, the government's going to pay for this. Okay, we're going to charge more. <laughs> and they kept raising the cost. And the more they raised the cost, the more money the government gave them. Same thing happens here. So as soon as you say, okay, we're going to give you money for for better child, uh, for more child care, there's going to be a whole rash of people showing up with new child care programs. And the cost is going to go up. And so whatever you were paying for child care is going to double, triple, quadruple. Problem is, is the child care payments from the government aren't going to keep up with the inflation in child care. Just the way money works. Incentives, human nature. So we were talking about a second ago. 
this is the problem with economists is that they don't factor in the business dynamics of money and human nature. If I'm going to put free money out there, there's always guaranteed going to be somebody that figures out a way to steal it. <laughs> you know, if you go back and look at what happened with all the extended unemployment benefits, PPP loans, blah, 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 there's a mass amount of fraud. A lot of money went overseas to people through different scams and programs that were put together to take advantage of those fundings because we don't think things through. We just say, oh, we got to do this. And they throw money at stuff. And surprise, human nature is people figure out a way to steal it. Same thing happens with government programs to try to increase child care support. The, the ideas are great, right? The ideas are fantastic. Let's, let's give people two free years of junior college. Okay, let's think about that for a second. I give people two, two free years of college. They go to college for two years. They get a associate's degree in something. They're two years out of the workforce. They've been going to college for free for two years, have no more experience and no real degree that will compete with the college degree that people have already in, in the process of the markets where there's two million more jobs and we've got unemployed people. What do you think their odds are they're going to get a job? Did we help them? As we talked about last week, if you want to really help people, give them two years of a trade school paid for, give them a talent, give them a skill set that they can go out and apply today and start making money. You know, but these are the things we don't think about. Human nature, cause, effect, these type of things. So this is all going to feed back into the markets, though. Now, there's a couple of things going on with the markets, and I've got an article coming out tomorrow specifically on this is that in the short term, markets are oversold enough to elicit a bounce. We talked about this last week, got a little bit of a bounce last week. We need to see some follow through this week. You see the markets rally at least back towards the 50-day moving average. Now, markets are set to open a little bit weak this morning, but we need to see some recovery by this afternoon. And markets, most importantly, need to hold above the 100-day moving average. Now, markets are kind of a funny animal. They can come down to support and kind of bounce around there a little bit and then rally off of it, and they need to go ahead and move higher. If markets come down to support, they rally off of it, then come back down and test it, and then rally off of it, the more times that they come down and retest that support without kind of getting its act together and moving off onto a, a more bullish trend it does build support at that level every time it retests it, but it also weakens the internal of the markets to a point that multiple retests will uh, eventually lead to a failure. It's kind of think about like kicking a door in. You know, you kind of keep kicking on the door, and the first couple of times you kick it, the door's solid, it's not going anywhere, but the more you kick it, eventually it weakens and eventually it's going to break open. And that's kind of the way the market works. The more that we retest that support, on weak underlying internals and, 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 and lack of, of momentum in the markets, the more likely it becomes that you're going to get a break, a violation of that support and test lower lows. Right now, we've got both weekly and monthly sell signals in place. As we come back from the break, I'll talk to you about what that means and why we're paying attention to it. Does it mean we need to do anything right now? No, but I'll tell you what we're watching for just in case. Don't go away. All right, so just for the break, talk a little bit about 
Weekly and monthly indicators. Now, tomorrow on our website, we will have a new article out. It's our Technically Speaking Tuesday edition talking about this, this kind of mild rally we had last week. Um, internals are still very weak here, but we are going into earnings season. Should give us a little bit of support if earnings are good. And again, there's a big risk here about earnings and forward outlook for earnings, et cetera, over the course of the next few weeks. And so that's something to really pay close attention to. And you know, we're watching our levels of support and resistance very closely here with our portfolios because there are a lot of things going on. Higher oil prices, higher inflation, higher interest rates, those do not play out well for stocks in general. Doesn't mean, you know, oil stocks can keep going up, but the rest of the market may not. Uh, higher interest rates, not great for uh, stocks like technology, right? Weighs on those. So again, there's lots of risk here in the market short term. Now, as we said last week, you know, the markets are very oversold on a short term basis, and as we'll cover in our three minutes on markets and money uh, later on this morning. You know, we are on MACD buy signals. We've got confirmed buy signals really on both our money flow indicators as well as our MACD, all short term. So for the next couple of weeks, there could certainly be a bit of upward bias to stocks in the near term. And that wouldn't be surprising after this harrowing 5% decline we had over the last three, four weeks. And we had this decline, markets got oversold, not surprising to see a bit of a bounce here. But Longer term, there's bigger concerns that are surfacing. In our weekly newsletter, we've been publishing a risk management chart for 401k plans since 2006. Now, it's a model that I developed back in the 19, late 1990s. We actually started publishing it weekly in our newsletter back in 2006 and have tracked it ever since. And... There's a combination of a short and a long-term sell signal, which suggests risk increases or risk reductions to portfolios. And right now, both of those weekly signals are now confirmed from a very high level, from a historically high level, which suggests that there's certainly some underlying concerns. The markets are trading at the top of their long-term trend channel, and you've got weekly sell signals in place. Now, does that mean that you go sell everything? And go to cash, no, that's not what that means at all. It means that you need to be pay, paying attention to what's going on. Again, short term, we're oversold, we're on buy signals. Longer term, on a weekly basis, we're on sell signals and very overbought. Monthly, sell signals. We've got a monthly money flow sell signal in place, which is only triggered rarely. Previous to this one was in February of 2020. And in late 2015, before the 2015-2016 double back-to-back 20% declines. Outside of that, it's been positive. Now, the only thing we don't have confirming right now on the monthly basis is our MACD monthlies. Now, they are turned lower from a very high level, but they have not crossed yet. Now, it's important to remember that these weekly, monthly signals are only valid at the end of the period. So, in other words, a weekly signal is only valid at the end of the week. A monthly signal is only valid at the end of the month. So, things can change. But we'll update these signals at the end of the month when we get there. But right now, there are certainly causes of concern that suggest we need to be at least aware of the risk doesn't mean to be, that we need to be taking any immediate action. And this is the one thing that investors tend to 
mistake about investing. If you're somebody that trades on a very regular basis, right? You're buying stuff, you're holding periods of few hours to a few days. Don't worry about the weekly, monthly stuff. Doesn't matter. Just pay attention to daily charts. That's all you need to know. If you're somebody who tries to subscribe to a long-term kind of buy and hold strategy, don't worry about the daily stuff. Focus on the monthlies, the weeklies to help you manage risk, manage exposures. It's important to always match your time frame with your portfolio. It's what we call duration. And, you know, in the bond market, we talk about duration in bonds all the time. It's like, well, you know, my, my time horizon for needing my money is three years. That's my duration. Why would I buy a 10-year bond that doesn't mature for 10 years, right? I need to match my duration. If my holding period for capital is three years, I need to buy bonds that are three years in duration. Same thing goes for equities, though. Equities technically don't have a duration, they're going to be around forever. But you can manage your portfolio for the duration exposure that you have in equities. So in other words, if you're going to need your money in three years or five years, that is a vastly different story than somebody who needs some doesn't need their money for 30 years. So matching your duration in your portfolio is just as important as matching it in your bonds. So and this is my point. So when you're looking at your portfolio, you need to think about how you approach your portfolio. How do you trade? Are you a short-term trader? Are you an intermediate term? Are you a long-term guy? It doesn't matter how you manage your money. That's solely up to you. But don't be looking at daily charts if you're somebody who says, hey, you know, I'm never selling this stuff. I'm just going to ride it up and down. You don't need any charts if you're just going to do that. But if you, if you want to manage the risk of losing a large chunk of your capital, don't worry about daily charts. Worry about the weekly and the monthlies. And the monthlies are certainly telling you there's risk. Does that mean sell everything out of cash? No, absolutely not. It means be aware of what's going on. Pay attention to key important support levels on a weekly or a monthly basis. When you violate those, then it's time to start thinking about raising some cash, rebalancing risk, etc., but we're not there yet. We had this terrible 5% decline. If you listen to the markets, it was, it was the worst bear market since March of 2020. <laughs> I jest. But it was. it was. It was three weeks of where, almost four weeks actually, of, of where it didn't seem like anything would really go right. And, and really, that's kind of continuing. Despite the fact that we kind of rallied last week, it really wasn't a very strong rally. And a lot of the meme stocks that we saw people chasing earlier this year, the GameStops, the AMCs, a lot of the Robinhood traders, a lot of that retail trading momentum exuberance has faded away. I think it moved over to Bitcoin temporarily. You know, it's just something to be aware of that there's a lot of rotational activity in the markets. And again, the markets underlying the surface. When you look at the market itself and you look at a kind of a longer term picture of the market, you have to really squint to see the recent corrections. It's barely noticeable. But underneath the surface, there's a lot of deterioration. Internals are weak. 
economic growth is weakening. Earnings growth is likely going to weaken very sharply here. The Fed, interest rates, inflation, oil prices, you know, all this stuff is not behaving currently. And it's very worrisome. And we're watching it very closely, and we will take action when we get to that point. Just right now, nothing's broken. And that's kind of the real, kind of the key measure here. Despite the fact we had this little 5% correction, nothing's broken. Now, there's lots of things wrong, right? This is kind of like driving a car down the street, and your check engine light comes on. Now, immediately can be something serious. Or maybe nothing at all, right? Could just be a faulty switch, faulty fuse. But you don't know until you kind of get in there and, and start doing the analytical work and figure out what's actually wrong with the car. Again, it could just be a real simple fuse. Change the fuse out, done. Could be something a lot more serious. But that's kind of the problem with the markets right now is, you know, that's where we are. Now, there's two types of people when it comes to check engine lights. There's people like me that when the check engine light comes on, I generally go to my neighborhood buddy that uh, lives down the street from me, and he's an auto mechanic. I take it to his shop, and we check it out. We get it fixed, whatever it is. Then there's my wife that will tell me, my check engine light is on. I go, well, when did it come on? About four months ago. If you're the buy and hold investor that doesn't check your engine light, you might want to think about checking your engine light. <laughs> There's something going on in the markets. Don't know what it is just yet. Might be nothing. Might be something. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest blog post is out this morning talking about the 5,000-year low in interest rates. What does it mean? Does that mean interest rates have to go up? It's all on our website this morning. Also, our Technically Speaking post will be out tomorrow. Three minutes of markets and money coming up, and our daily commentary is on the website now. Man, tons of stuff. Just get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world.